I was so enamored with Beethoven's Fifth and Ninth that I would sort of stand there. Again, I guess I was six years old, seven, whatever, and I would I would kind of air conduct it. And uh, we had a maid at the time, and you have to keep in mind that in Europe, to have a maid was like a standard thing. It's not like you know you're a super rich person. It's it's very, it's kind of standard. Anyway, this maid became very enamored by the fact that I would be constantly air conducting um, Beethoven, and so she she actually made me a tuxedo and bought me a baton. So I remember coming home after school, and I put on Beethoven's Fifth and Ninth, uh, Fifth or Ninth, and stand on the dining room table in my tux and and my baton and conducting it from beginning to end uh, at least a couple of times a week. Welcome to the season three premiere of Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Ling. We've been on hiatus for a couple of months while I was attending film festivals near and far and sitting down with some of the genre's best to share with all of you in this new season. And if I may say so myself, it's sure to be some of our best episodes yet. Some upcoming things to look forward to? Our episode on the Great Fantasia Film Festival in Montreal, where we watched some terrifying and crazy new movies and had the opportunity to sit down with the filmmakers and do the SYG thing. We also have a special episode coming up on filmmaker and stop-motion animation legend David Allen, whose magnum opus, The Prime Evils, is finally completed and seeing the light of day. It's an amazing story about one of the genre's great unsung heroes. I should also point out some changes you will notice about the show from now on. We will no longer be dropping new episodes every week, but we'll be dropping new episodes every other week to allow ourselves a little more time to produce each episode. The seasons will be a little longer to make up for this though, so you'll get just as much SYG as you always have. Also, we will be dropping more bonus episodes and surprise guests. I want to take a moment now to extend heartfelt condolences to the family and friends of two beloved genre filmmakers that we lost this week, Jeff Burr and Anthony Hickox. Jeff was the filmmaker behind Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Stepfather 2, From a Whisper to a Scream, and Puppet Master 4 and 5, among many other excellent films. And Anthony Hickox was the filmmaker that brought us Hellraiser 3, Waxwork, Sundown, and Warlock, to name a few. I just spoke to Jeff a week ago when we were scheduling a time for him to do an episode of the show on his wonderful body of work. I didn't get the chance to know Jeff well, But in our correspondence, he was kind and funny and so appreciative that I wanted him to do an episode of the show. Both of these great filmmakers are gone too soon. Please watch one of their many great movies. They will be missed. Well, that's it. Now it's time to get into it. Oh, and just one more thing. We have something very exciting brewing for you all for Halloween. Happy Friday the 13th. Now... Let's spill some guts.
Few film genres demonstrate the value of a great score more than the horror genre. Imagine Psycho without Bernard Herrmann's iconic music. Jaws without those legendary themes by John Williams. The Omen with no Jerry Goldsmith's score to get our spines tingled. And that's barely scratching the surface of the many one-of-a-kind composers whose music has brought to life some of the greatest films in cinema history. I'm reminded of a story John Carpenter tells of showing a cut of Halloween without its score to a studio executive who brushed the film off. She saw it again after the score had been laid in and was terrified. John Carpenter is of course another one we can add to the list of legendary genre composers. In this episode, I am joined by one such composer. A composer who has a sound and feel like none other, and has brought us equal parts wonder and terror, with scores for classics like Reanimator, Trancers, From Beyond, Ghoulies, Puppet Master, and The Pit and the Pendulum. And that's just a small selection from the list of great movies that have been scored by the one and only Richard Band. Richard is a true virtuoso. His music has a signature and a life to it that immediately ups the ante of any film privileged enough to have him on board as the composer. Richard and I talk about his childhood growing up in Italy with his brother Charles Band. Yes, the one and only Charlie Band. The composers that had an influence on him, his process for the alchemy that is his music, and he even shares some selections of his work for you lucky listeners. Crank the volume and prepare to be warped to the world of the weird and wondrous with Richard Ban. Hey, Richard. Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm very well, sir. How are you? I'm copacetic. Are you? So you're in sunny California, right? I am in sunny California, and uh, it's going to be a toasty 95 today. Oh, I'm in uh, rainy, drizzly outside Toronto. Toronto. I would say yeah. the area I'm in, but no American listeners will know what I'm talking about. So I'll just well, say outside Toronto. <laughs> I've been to Toronto, and yes, it was uh, drizzly and rainy, uh, but lovely, though. I like Toronto a lot. Yeah, it's funny because it's like um, Toronto is like a great city for I think Toronto because it is such a such a wide community of cultures here so you get kind of there's such pockets in Toronto of like you know communities of people from all over and so Toronto is a great city for food and music and live performances and stuff like that and people come here from from the states and they don't realize how much like that it is um, yes that was my <laughs> that was my impression in, yeah. including the, the 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 cost of rents and and uh, property it's insane there as well one would think one would think it would be better than here but uh it's insane there as well sure is yep that's why i'm outside toronto and not in toronto proper anymore <laughs> understood I, yeah i wanted to eventually own a home and not just rent one until i die yeah I I hear you. <laughs> so let's get right into sort of the 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 beginnings, the early stage here. Um, so your dad was, was Albert Band, who was an accomplished filmmaker himself. Is that sort of how you think you developed a love for for movies and for the cinema is through your dad? Oh, there's no question about that. Um, yeah, both my brother and I, <clears throat> we were brought up in the business and uh, had the great fortune to. Um, well, several very good fortunes to be around my father from the time we were very young when he was shooting movies. Um, I, I start remembering things well when we went to Europe 
which was, uh, I think it was 1959, uh, somewhere right in there, when he went, uh, he took the family to Sweden to shoot the movie The uh, Face of Fire. And we spent a good deal of time in Sweden. Uh, I think it was like six, seven months in Sweden, um, which was a, actually my brother and I, we appeared in that film as two little kids in bunk beds. <laughs> so uh, uh, that was, I, I, I believe that was our first uh, on-film experience. Um, but yes, but first was Sweden. Then uh, after that period there, uh, he moved the family to France. Uh, well, actually, let me backtrack a little. Even before Sweden, my father had been working with John Huston as a, first, I think, a, a, an assistant and then an editor. Then, and then uh, started working with them. My father wrote the screenplay for The Red Badge of Courage. And uh, they went their separate ways roughly around the time when Houston was going to go to Africa to shoot the African Queen. Uh, my father was not excited about going over there with them because he knew that <clears throat> one of the main reasons Houston wanted to go was to do big game hunting. He wasn't that uh, he wanted to shoot the film as well from the stories I heard, but he was more interested in game hunting. And uh, of course, there are numerous uh, stories and documentations of uh, how the film took almost a year to make. Many people got sick, uh, several people died, and Houston was off half the time hunting. And it was a very, very tough shoot. Uh, so uh, uh, my father was uh, probably probably right in one respect, not going. But anyway, point being, it was roughly at that, after that point or around that point that uh, we, we went off to Sweden. So after Sweden, it was Paris uh, uh, where my father grew up and uh, about a year in Paris. And then it was off to Rome uh, for 11 years thereafter where, where we grew up. And uh, uh, that's when Rome was known as the Hollywood of Europe, and uh, and so there were <clears throat> there were so many great films being made there. The genres that were most uh, prolific coming out of Rome were a lot of the spaghetti westerns, you know, that everybody would know, as well as all the great Hercules type movies. And my father did a lot of those over there, westerns, and. Uh, you know, in Hercules movies with people like Steve Reeves, Gordon Scott, uh, like also a lot of Westerns with uh, uh, well-known American actors. So they were always Italian-American co-productions. So be it uh, uh, Joseph Cotton, Robert Ryan, uh, uh, lots of well-known uh, American actors. So we were, we were actually in Rome for that 11-year period where it was it was golden. That was like a golden period uh, up through about 1970. And that's when we came back to this country. So Italy was kind of the most significant imprint of all the European places that you guys lived? Yeah, well, mainly because, you know, we grew up there. I mean, I was, I guess I was about, when we went to Sweden, I guess I was around five and and uh, my brother uh, seven. And uh, so yeah, I think by the time we got to Italy, I guess I was you know, about six or seven and left when I was, uh, I guess, about 17 or maybe close to 18. Uh, so, yeah, and uh, the benefit, again, uh, 
being over there and growing up there, during a lot of our summer vacations, <clears throat> we would go off with my father uh, to the location shoots, be it Yugoslavia, where there was a lot of things being shot, Spain, uh, a lot of a lot of movies shot there. Of course, Italy as well. So we 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 got to partake and and go to the location shootings, and so it was it was a great it was a wonderful existence. Uh, I, I I would go and relive it time and time again. It was a great yeah. uh, an eleven year period. I mean, I with remember- a lot of big with a lot of big people in Rome at the time. Like I said, it was the Hollywood of Europe. You know, be it uh, Clint Eastwood, who I used to run into practically every week at a movie theater when he was doing the Sergio Leone movies, uh, <clears throat> great authors like Norman Mailer and um, uh, actors, actresses. It was, it was a great, uh, a, lot, a, a large expatriate uh, uh, American uh, artistic community there. So it, it was a wonderful uh, upbringing. Yeah, Charlie tells a story about being like babysat by Marilyn Monroe and all this crazy stuff. Yeah, that's true. That's from from what we were told. We were babysat uh, at a, now. That's a way before we would have gone to Europe. So I would have been a baby, and my my brother, uh, slightly older baby. But yeah, we were told that uh, that uh, Marilyn Monroe uh, babysat us a couple of times, or what have you. <laughs> I wish I could remember that. I but, know, uh, right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, singing little nursery rhymes in that Marilyn Monroe tone to, to you little baby bands. Yeah, that's a memory. Right. Um, an, interesting, you- an interesting twist on that is that he, um, is that, uh, at, I think that was around the time where she was married to Joe DiMaggio, or maybe it was a few years later, but... Uh, it would be uh, about 18 years later when I came back to this country that I would meet uh, a, a young uh, lady at the time named Vicky DiMaggio, who was Vince DiMaggio's daughter. Vince and Joe were the ones who played on the baseball teams, as, as you know. And uh, so I ended up having a relationship with one of the DiMaggio's <laughs> 20 years later, which was <laughs> interesting twists after <clears throat> all those times ba- re- going back to the, b- being babysat at, by Marilyn Monroe. Wow. Yeah, that's, I mean, you know, you and Charlie's upbringing was not like other people's. <laughs> no, interesting no. characters. John Houston's in and out of the picture, Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> like. Um, Houston, right. I'm like you hear colorful stories about. I I don't know that he was uh, the most fun guide for people to work with. But did your dad ever tell you guys stories about working with John Houston, or did he have a good experience with him? Yeah, he told us a few now and then. He would Houston. He liked to pull, pull practical jokes, uh, and um, uh, I'm 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 trying to remember. He told us one story. Um, Oh my gosh, I'm I'm having a bit of a brain fart because he was Houston was with this very famous actress, uh, and that's who I'm having the brain fart about right now. Uh, but he, there was some story where where they were the three of them, Houston, this very famous actress who I'm spacing on right now. I can't believe it. Uh, she, not Shelley Winter. Um, eh, it'll come to me. Uh, they were the three of them were in New York. This is on one of uh, uh, on one of my father's trips back, and they were palling around. And 
Houston did some crazy practical joke where he had the police arrest my father and put him in jail for like six hours, six hours or something. I don't remember what it was about, but I know he would do like really wow. severe practical uh jokes i was gonna say that's a few steps beyond you know whoopee cushions and you know yeah no no these these were in those days some of these guys uh in hollywood when they did they did some crazy things so that was one of them i knew i remember that a little bit taking place in new york specifically wow now do you when do you you remember sort of starting to catch the bug for 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 music. Did it start with classical music? I know for a lot of composers, it starts with with classical music. Was that your beginning as well? Well, in a way, um, when we moved to Paris after Sweden, uh, my father always played classical music. He loved classical music. So there would be classical music playing uh, in the household. And uh, I fell in love with listening to uh, Beethoven, uh, mainly the the fifth and the ninth. I just love listening to those and and several other obviously uh, composers. But when we moved to Paris, um, I was so enamored with Beethoven's fifth and ninth that I would sort of stand there again. I guess I was six years old, seven, whatever, and I would I would kind of air conduct it. And uh, we had a maid at the time. And you have to keep in mind that in Europe, to have a maid was like a standard thing. It's not like, you know, you're a super rich person. Right. It's it's, very, it's kind of standard. Anyway, this maid became very enamored by the fact that I would be constantly air conducting um, Beethoven. And so she, she actually made me a tuxedo and bought me a baton. So I remember coming home after school. And I put on Beethoven's fifth and ninth, uh, fifth or ninth, and stand on the dining room table in my tux and and my baton and conducting it from beginning to end uh, at least a couple of times a week. So I was definitely into, uh, you know, that sort of uh, love of music from an early, excuse me, from an early age. Um, Later on, after we moved to, to Europe and I became a little bit older, of course, I never lost the love for classical music, but then started getting into rock and roll and uh, then, you know, the Beatles and, and uh, Motown music, uh, all that sort of thing. So that became uh, my bigger love at the time. And, and that was sort of the transition. But I was far away at that point from ever thinking about doing film music. I was just right. a, I was a, a fan of that music. And it wasn't until 11 uh, when I started uh, actually learning an instrument. That was a whole other story. What was the instrument you started to learn? Well, we were on a location shoot in, um, in Spain <clears throat> on one of my dad's movies. This particular one was a Western. I think it was, it was either the movie he did called The Hellbenders or a minute to pray, a second to die. I don't remember which one. But in any case, we were in uh, the, the day we had arrived in Madrid. Uh, that first night, I remember we went out uh, to a wonderful dinner at a restaurant, I remember to this day, called El Chotis. And it, it was wonderful and had a great dinner. And afterwards, uh, my parents took us across the square and I went to, uh, they took us to a flamenco show 
that I hadn't, I had, I had never been to a flamenco show. That's where I fell in love with the guitar. I, for the first time, I'd heard flamenco music and saw the, the dancing, of course, and incredible guitar playing and all of that. And I became so enamored with that experience. The next day, I went out and bought myself a guitar and taught myself how to play. And within uh, about a year and a half, I was actually playing in bands uh, back in Italy and that's how it all started. It was because of that, uh, that learning guitar and that ex- first experience uh, at the flamenco show. It blew were, me away. Were you playing rock and roll music or flamenco well, music? Well, with the band, yeah, I wasn't playing flamenco music. But yes, <laughs> I, had, um, I had a small band at the time. Again, you have to remember, I'm like 12 years old. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had a small band and... And that experience grew from there. As I got a little bit older, I then uh, had a slightly larger band, about four or five people. I put them up together my own band. We actually would go touring around parts of Italy uh, when I was like 13 years old. And I, I think we were more of a like a novelty piece because I was this 13-year-old playing with a bunch of adults at that time. It wasn't like a high school band. A couple of people, I mean, most of them were young, right? I'm not talking adults. There was the lead singer we had. He was an adult, young adult, but there were um, most of the other guys in the band were, I don't know, 17 to 18, 19, like that. And I was this like 13-year-old playing guitar. I think I looked like a chipmunk, you know, big years at the time or what have you it was uh, so I, I always think that maybe in those first couple of years touring around a bit here and there and playing nightclubs I was maybe it was more of a novelty act in some weird way but then later after you know once I was like 15 or what have you then I had more serious bands where I was writing music with my cohorts and and touring around and all that in the in the rock and roll jazz progressive sort of sort of way we were doing some actually pretty interesting music at the time right and you know it's interesting too because i, I listening to some of your work you know that i'm curious sort of if you think that growing up in europe that that the europeans a european style or flair do you think it finds its way into your work as a composer i don't know i don't know that's a good question um I don't think so, but I don't know. Uh, you know, it's that's sort of hard to identify. Uh, yeah, I really do view film music as a very different thing from playing. You know, playing in a in a rock slash jazzy band. You know, they are two different things. But having said that, I think it's a very important ingredient ultimately in film scoring. I'd say a good deal of your better composers came up, you know, not wanting to be film composers per se, but having a good idea about, about uh, one, having learned from the ear, at least at once, one point and doing improvisations and different styles and all of that. So I think that plays, it plays a part. Um, and, uh, since I learned by ear originally, I never studied music formally till I was till I came back to this country when I was, I guess, about eighteen. Uh, then I started studying formally. 
but up until that point, I didn't know how to read music. You know, it was all it was all by ear. So I think that that's an important ingredient and one that seems to not be uncommon with a lot of uh, people who end up in uh, film in film composition. What was the first film score you remember sort of making an impact on you? Like not the film itself, but strictly the score. Well, the one of the biggest impacts, I would say, from a couple of standpoints, uh, was West Side Story. Not only for, well, obviously a film score, but an, an incredible musical as well. Plus, I fell in love with Natalie Wood. You know, so <laughs> it was it was like a, you know, it was that, that was a big winner <laughs> yeah. for me. Yeah. yeah. Not only did I love the music and love the film, but I fell in love with Natalie Woods. So that was a that was a big bonus. Uh, Fairly easy that, thing to uh, do. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and so, so that th- that was one, but also very 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 influential was Doctor Shivago, Marie Charles for Doctor Shivago. Yeah. Incredible score and and movie. Uh, the David Lean movies I've always regarded as just incredible. Those are big films, so that mostly it was like these big epics that were that were influential. Yes, yeah, yeah, they were big epics, you know. And the way we saw them in Italy, you know, the, I don't know about here. Probably they had well, they had in Italy they had an intermission. So they some of those films. Another one was like Ben Hur. There was another one, big epic film, and it. I don't know if you remember, but some of those films they would start out. Uh, with an overture, a yeah. musical overture, then you'd have the first half of the film. Then there would be an intermission where they would play music, right, uh, during the intermission from the from the from the score, and then you'd have the rest of the film. That's the way I viewed those, and those were those epic, epic movies. So well, those movies uh, had a much more theatrical presentation than anything does now, right? Because there was these intermissions, yes. and you know, it was they, the theaters were sort of kind of the classical art house style cinemas and stuff. I don't think, I wonder if young people really ever get that experience anymore, unless, you know, they have parents that, that find some review cinema to take them to or something. I, well, I think, you know, they tried to start bringing that back, I guess about 10 years ago with those theaters where um, some of the theaters were even serving liquor outside and they were very, very fancy theaters with, the best sound systems or the reclining seats. They were trying to make it into a super, super duper uh, experience. And um, I think they were having some good success, but when COVID hit yeah. uh, a few years ago, it was just disastrous for, for exhibitors. Yeah. And uh, so many theaters have been, have closed down because of it. And the advent of streaming on TV and all this stuff, it's, it's proven to be, horrible for for theater going uh but there is nothing like going to see um a, especially a big epic film yeah. you know yeah. in a real good theater with the great sound and screen you can't get that on a, at your home even if you have a good sound system yeah. up, you just don't get that and it's also that thing of like sitting in a dark room with a bunch of strangers and this communal experience that you have together watching the film right where you hear other people going oh, and they scream and they're crying and all that is part of that experience that you can't get at home right exactly so i'm i i hope in the future that 
theater going will come back. Um, I still like to go to a theater, but I'll only go if it's like, you know, a big movie. Because some movies really do require a big room, like you said, the big sound system, the darkness, the communal thing. Some films just require that. You know, other films you can watch on TV and it's not that much of a difference. But for for big event films, uh, you, you really, it's, it should be a theater experience. And so that's, uh, that's why I'm relating back to those first films, you know, that were so impressive to me, like a Dr. Zhivago, like a Ben-Hur, like a West Side Story, for that matter. Um, those were very important uh, for me to, uh, to, to get that sense of grandeur um, that movies yeah. could portray and that music could portray. That's interesting to me, too, because I think of, you know, in your work, I would I would say one of the sort of trademark Richard Van things in your scores is that they have this big sound and that, you know, we were sort of joking before we started recording about the, the, the fact that you can produce these wonderful big scores on these rather small budgets. And because uh, you've done a lot of, you know, low budget uh, films um, in your career. And, and, you know, but do you think that, uh, you know, I think one of the characteristics of a lot of sort of your scores is, is that, you know, there can be a horror film or they're often genre films that you've worked on. And, but there always seems to me that they're even in the, you know the really dark ones or the really sort of straight ahead ones that don't have a fantastical element that your scores often do have a sense of whimsy or 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 fantastic or fantasy and they have this big sound. Do you think that comes from these big epics that you were so fond of when you were younger? I think that's very possible. It, again, I, the way I view films. Um, as opposed to television, now granted, television is the means by which today we see a lot of films, but to me there was a big difference in the musical approach of films versus television music. Um, also the content of a film, you, you have, you know, a, an hour and a half or more, you know, of content to deal with, not a 30-minute thing or a one-hour formula. Um, but I... I I think perhaps so that I, I I always viewed film, no matter what the genre, as a true experience, very much like I was relating to with those first films. It should be something that is memorable, that uh, that's more grandiose, let's say. Um, I fought very hard from the early days to to make music and the films that I did make them a, a bigger uh, attraction like you were talking about bigger sounding whatever because I truly believe that if the if the scores were treated like a movie scores right and if they had that that quality and you had orchestra or at least some orchestra and you it 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 would just lift the entire level of the production. And that was my theory going back to the very beginning of the Empire days. Um, and is always and is still the theory to my day. Uh, to, to, to this day, I I fought hard to uh, to try to get that bigger cinematic sound because it it did 
in the Empire days, as an example, it brought these B films up to maybe not the A level, but certainly like a B plus level, let's say. <laughs> yeah. And and people it, and and the production values that were portrayed in those Empire movies were far, far, far better and beyond what most people were doing in the day. From a musical standpoint, I hated the 60s and 70s music, generally speaking, in the use of uh, rock and roll instruments, farfisa organs, guitars, stupid synthesizers. It just, to me, it all diminished everything. Whereas when you went to see a movie that, uh, again, like be it a Star Wars or a Dr. Zhivago or Bender, there was a grand, a grandeur to those. And I, I always wanted to bring that to film. It should be, uh, I wanted it to be a, a, an experience, a cinematic experience. And I larger believe that. Than life, kind of, yeah. yeah. Larger, larger than life, exactly. Yeah. So I didn't buy into the uh, philosophy of, eh, it's just a B film, so, you know, uh, knock it out in a couple of weeks and, uh, you know, move on to the next. I, I, I just don't work that way. I, 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 don't, I don't believe in that. It's interesting, too, because like, you know, whenever I for me as a writer, whenever I'm writing, I always listen to scores. I never listen to stuff with words. and scores are perfect when you're a writer, because a score is often part of a fabric of emphasizing elements of a story or creating a mood. And so as a writer, when you're listening to music, you often put on music that will help create a mood and, and scores are so good for doing that. Um, but I think of, you know, I'll have Jerry Goldsmith or someone like that. And you're part of that rotation. And those guys who are doing, you know, in many cases, these huge movies, I don't often find that their work sounds any bigger than your work. Were you influenced by composers like Bernard Herrmann or Jerry Goldsmith as well? Or, Well, sure. I mean, there's definitely an influence. I mean, I, I, to this day, I think Jerry was one, one of the best composers ever um, of, of, of the last generation, let's say. Um, of course, you know, before Jerry, obviously we had great composers, uh, um, especially in the beginning when you had great classical composers come to this country like Korngold or, or Stalling or you know, various various people, Max Steiner, the New Newman, uh, you, you know, I could go on. Uh, but of all of them, Jerry always stood out uh as being one of the most creative composers. Uh, Bernard Herrmann, again, the one generation just a little bit uh, older than, than Jerry. Uh, also, I admired very much the fact, not, not so much of his style, which I loved, but the fact that he, again, was a guy who really took risks. He, he did things that nobody else did. Yeah. From what I understand, <clears throat> he was not a pleasant guy. It, people didn't like him. Uh, I think a lot of people were jealous of him. I think there was a lot of jealousy going on in that studio system at the time, by the way, because it was very not like today. You know, MGM had their stable of composers. Uh, Fox had theirs. Uh, uh, you know, it was different. The whole system was different. But uh, he was a guy, Herman, who who did who took risks uh, from a musical standpoint. And uh, so I admired that. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I, I kind of like and admired people who, who, who took risks and did things differently. Um, and to me, Jerry was one of those, uh, one of those 
uh, people. And I think one of the best examples. Um, and that's not to mention the fact that I knew him and uh, worked with his son, Joel and I, Joel Goldsmith, uh, and I worked together on our very first score, Laser Blast, <clears throat> that we wrote together. And Joel and I would go on over the following 25, 30 years to work on various things together. Um, last of which does when he was doing Stargate and I did about 15 or 16 episodes of Stargate. And, um, so we were very good friends and, uh, <clears throat> he died much, much, much too young. Um, but anyhow, so yeah, Jerry, uh, so yeah, of course there were influences and people I admired. And I think for the reasons I just, I just discussed. Like a film like The Omen, for example, that has such a memorable score. You know, do, do you remember seeing that movie? And like, I'm curious sort of for you, because because there's so many great genre films that you've worked on. Like, what was the first horror movie that sort of scared you silly, that had an impact on you as a horror film? You, know, you talked a lot about these great without, Well, without question, the movie that scared the living daylights out of me <clears throat> as a younger adult was The Exorcist. I yeah. loved that movie. Yeah. Uh, and I love The Omen, by the way. I, I thought uh, The Omen was great. Of course, the score is great. <clears throat> um, but the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, The Exorcist, Exorcist was incredible. Uh, that, the, and of course, Omen came out, what, about a year or so later, I think. It was pretty, yeah. pretty close, pretty, pretty close in, yeah, yeah. in timing. So those two definitely scared me. But as a very small child, um, the uh, the movie that haunted me for years, I mean, it's silly, sounds silly now, but I'm talking when I was like five years older, was Invaders from Mars. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that one that one haunted me yeah. for, for years as a small small child. Well, it's so funny, you know. One of the I always ask when I have a guest on what the first movie was that sort of scared the crap out of someone, and and it's usually you know a lot of people say The Exorcist, but it's funny because a lot of people will also say something that they saw when they were five or six that as an adult they're like you know it's ridiculous, but as a kid it had that impact on you, you know. Um, so it's you know Invaders from Mars though is like that's a fun movie, but as a kid, of course, I could see why that would be scary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kept remembering as a child when they when the people kind of sucked down into the earth into those tunnels and so it just yeah it was just uh, very <laughs> memorable you know. Now you <laughs> talked about your first score, which was Laser Blast, which you, which you collaborated on with with Joel Goldsmith. Um, what was that you know what was that like collaborating with with Joel on 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 your first film? What was sort of that process that you guys developed on that movie? Yeah, it was it was insane. Neither of us had ever done a movie. <laughs> right but what did we know yeah you know and and the the entire music budget was a thousand dollars a thousand dollars that was it oh geez yeah you know so <laughs> we we uh i mean we were doing it you know just to be able to do a first a, a score right to be the first one and we scammed everything we could joel scammed the studio time at a place that he knew and we scammed synthesizers and, you know, we just, uh, you know, scammed whatever we could to, <clears throat> to make it happen. Um, at that, when I did that, at that point, I had, I had had a couple of years or so of actual music training. I'd been in music school for a couple of years, <clears throat> about four years, five years before. 
before doing laser blast. So I'd have some formal training in music. When I got back to this country, I studied formally for about two and a half, three years, and then continued studying composition uh, through a couple of uh, private uh, teachers and composers. But then I dipped out, <clears throat> excuse me, I dipped out of, of music for a few years because uh, I was sick of academia and all this stuff and went into production uh, work on films through my father and brother and did assistant directing and then uh, production managing and associate producers on a couple of things. So I, I learned the trade of, of filmmaking from, a, from the production standpoint. And I, I think I did maybe 12 or 13 films on the production end. But then I got tired of it. Uh, it was kind of a thankless job. I was quite good at it, but and I, I loved making movies. That was all cool. Uh, but I got it was quite a thankless type of experience. So one day I, I decided to take a holiday and I went back to Europe. I remember this distinctly uh, by myself. And in Europe was sort of um, I was I remember sitting on the beach. It was in uh, in Monaco, because uh, I had come down from from uh, uh, from England to France, then took a train down to Monaco, and uh, I was going to, back to Italy at that point. But anyway, I was in Monaco for a few days. I remember sitting on the beach and looking out at the beach and this big rock out on the beach, and I was like contemplating, well, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Sort of, you know, <laughs> yeah. mental place. And so I'm contemplating that. I'm going, you know, what I want to do, I love movies, uh, but I don't want to do what I was doing the last two or three years in the production. And of course, my first love was music. But, you know, I realized when I came back to the States, you know, that every other third person on the street wanted to be a rock and roller and, you know, and, and, uh, do that bit that I had done touring around in Italy for the previous, you know, six years. And so what did I want to do? And it, like the proverbial light bulb went off in on top of my head, like in a cartoon. Yeah. Well, what about <laughs> doing music for movies, yeah. marrying those two loves, right? And that was the little ding, like you just yeah. mentioned. That's yeah. what happened. And then I came back to the States and it was at that point that uh, Joel and I got together and uh, and we pitched doing the score for Laser Blast and I guess whatever it was, it was 1977. Then we got the job approved through Erwin Yablons, uh, who was running Compass International. And uh, that's that's was that's how it came about. And did, did Joel's dad get involved? Did he help you guys at all or advise or he anything? Didn't help, no, he didn't help us at all, but he did come to the studio once uh, while, we, while we were recording the, the music and, uh, and was pleasantly impressed with what we were doing. Right. But and when you go back to... and listen to that score now, are you like, oh my goodness, like I wish I'd done this? Or are you happy with it? Actually, I'm very happy with it. It 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 showed some real cool. It it's very listenable, actually. It, it absolutely it, is. Yeah, the yeah. movie itself is way way more fun than it probably has any right to be when you know the budget and you know, like I, yeah. you know, it's quite a fun little crazy movie. It is a fun crazy little movie, and I, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think it's the the most 
or certainly one of the most viewed and panned movies on mystery science theater history or something like that. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I watched the movie. I've seen it quite a few times, but I showed it to some friends a year or two ago. We were on like this little Roddy McDowell kick. We watched Fright Night, a bunch of Roddy McDowell movies. So I showed them that and they were like, why is he in this movie? It's such a random part. And I was like, the whole movie's random. though. And that's, I think, the fun of Laser Blast is it's a crazy little movie. Right. Um, I mean, and, and Keenan Wynn. I yeah. Mean, come on. I mean, you <laughs> yeah. know, some of these characters in there. And uh, yeah, I mean, it has, you know, what, four or five, you know, great character actors in there. And it, yeah, it's it's totally wild. But it was a story that that sort of really hit home, you know, uh, it's a bullying story, right? And I think that's yeah. still resonant. Yeah, that's that's sort resident. of a timeless and thing. Been, yeah. And there's been so many movies and series made since then that follow sim- similar themes, you know, of a person finding a, a space gun and, you know, taking their revenge and changing them. I mean, it's been told many, many, many times in different ways. But uh, no, as far as the score is concerned, um, I think there's actually some very decent writing. The main theme is is very effective. The whole end is 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 uh, exciting. So you know, for what it was in the day, uh, and especially you have to remember this was way, way, way before MIDI even yeah. existed. Yeah. You know, so this is this is a. I mean, so you recorded every piece of it. There's none of it is electronic stuff. None of it. None of it. All all done by hand it's yeah none of it and is yeah. is that kind of unheard of now to do it that way well pretty much but i still work that way i mean yeah. I, I i i mean obviously if i'm recording with an orchestra that's different but a lot of the stuff that i'm doing that it does not have orchestra i still sit here and and perform it myself you know i still i still do it that way i granted i don't have a 24 track recorder and I'm not splicing tape, you know, that technology is, while it still exists, it's not used anymore. So, um, you know, technologically we've come light years ahead, but I have to say, um, all this technology stuff, I, I, while it's very useful in a lot of ways, uh, from a purely creative standpoint, I'm not real fond of it um, simply because it in in the old days, I'll call them the old days, you know, if I if I was writing for 10 or 12 hours a day, I was writing, I had my piano, I had music paper, I had a good pencil, a good sharpener, a good eraser, I had the Newton book, which transferred all the timings into frames and vice versa. And so I'd be writing for those 10 hours or 12 hours a day. Today, with all this technology, you have to be a friggin' genius technological <laughs> wizard to work. Well, what do I have here? I have five computers here, uh, six screens, uh, yeah. tons of electronic equipment. Um, so I'm lucky if in that equivalent 10 or 12 hours, I'm lucky if I get five hours of actual writing in. The other six to seven hours or whatever it is, is spent tweaking 
you know, gadgetry, <laughs> gadgetry and plugins and this yeah. and that. It's 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 a it's a whole different animal now. Yeah. Uh, and I think that takes away from some of the creativity, if not a lot of it. Um, while it opens up other types of creativity from a sonic standpoint, the time that it takes to really develop those, be it new sounds or combinations, is very time-consuming. And in film scoring, there's one luxury we almost never have, and that's time. Yeah. Because by the time it gets to us and to scoring, two things are almost always the case. One, they're out of time and they're out of money. Yeah, right. And that's a real problem. So they expect more and more and more. And the other big difference from the old days is that um, the technology has come so far that when people are doing editing, when the editors are editing whatever movie or show now, and and they can preview things, you've got QuickTime, uh, Avid, all these things, you see what you're doing, then they they can preview music of the, the wazoo through the temp internet. All that, yeah. And all this temp scoring stuff. And 90% of everything that comes in by the time it gets to me has been temped. And people inevitably, they start falling in love with stuff they've tempted with. Yeah. And that's a huge problem that takes away our creativity from the outset. Or, and because people get married to sort of what they want to hear, you know, so you'll get those situations where they'll come to you and they've tracked uh, and temp scored their movie with. Uh, the Omen, let's say, in a genre movie, right? And they say, yeah, we want it to sound like this, except they've got $2.40 for, yeah. for for a budget, you know? I said, yeah, but guys, you know, that's that's a... At the time, the score cost a half a million dollars, right. which would yeah. be a million and a half today. And uh, Jerry had, you know, three months to write it. And, uh, you know, you're giving me a week and a half and $2.40, you know? So it's, it's a little bit of a disconnect there so those are some of the issues that are not fun to deal with these days i remember that um a, a filmmaker neil named neil marshall his composer was talking about how neil does this great thing where um he tempts his movie and he'll give it to his composer and he'll say listen to this once and then completely forget it then start your work and i'm like that's a good approach because i think temp scores can be a blessing and a curse like when i've worked with composers on films i've made the temp score can become a real problem because people get too attached to it and you're like no it's just to give a notion of tone and then you know as sort of I, whenever i use temp scores though i usually kind of do the same thing i'm like this is utterly and surely just to give you a very kind of vaporous idea of a tone but people inevitably kind of get married to temp scores so they're they're yeah they're kind of a mixed blessing yeah and the other thing that ends up happening <clears throat> um it even if the the director produced even if they have an idea and they say oh, just you know something kind of like this or whatever this is just to give you a rough idea inevitably it it turns off a part of the brain on the composer's part because there's there's so many different ways you could score something that the director or producers that they, they, they didn't even think of and it might be 
a hundred times better. But that's kind of closed off right from the get go. Because they're thinking, I want it kind of like this, which is already saying not that other thing. (laughs) Exactly. So you're immediately closed off and shut down. And uh, I can honestly say all of my best work has been done when I do not have a temp score to deal with. There's not even a question in my mind about it. Like all the stuff you do for for Full Moon or have done for for your brother or for Charlie Band over the years, does that stuff ever come with temp scores, or is it usually just Charlie and you have such a, a process at this point that he just knows what to what you'll do with it and hands it off? Yeah, no. And and when it comes to stuff I do for for my brother, no, he they don't they don't. I've never had a temp really. Right. And no, no. It, it's it, it's not only just a matter of. I mean, yes, obviously, it's a matter of trust. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, yes, of course, it's a matter of trust, but I just, I know my process and, uh, and there's the trust there. And I mean, in, yeah, I can think of a few that maybe a couple of scenes might have been tempt here or there, but no, generally speaking. And, I, that, and that's the way I worked with Stuart as well. Yeah. Stuart never tempt anything, ever. Yeah. And that was very important. Um, do you think I worked for Stuart, with it was because he deliberately did not want to steer you a certain direction? He wanted you to kind of bring your own flavor to it? Well, I think maybe that was a part of it, but at the time we started working together, you know, back in what, Reanimator and then From Beyond, it, people weren't doing that much temp scoring at that point anyway. Right. Because right. it wasn't, it, then I'm guessing it wasn't just, you know, throw a track in your Avid or whatever. It was still. Right. It was, yeah. it, again, the, the technology didn't exist. I mean, it's like the first 15 years I was scoring films. We never had QuickTime or stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I mean, in back in Jerry's day, I re, in fact, I remember Jerry telling me, he said, boy, the first time I got a Moviola in my house, I could see some of the film that I was scoring to. I mean, you can imagine sitting there with a big moviola making all that terrible yeah. sound, right? Huge and he was, machine he was too, right? Right. And he was jazzed that he he would be able to maybe, you know, review a scene and have the film had the film there and all that. I mean, first 15 years, you know, we didn't have any of that. I never had a moviola. I never so we had to take massive have the music editor take massive amounts of music notes like where we wanted the music specifically at 2.3 seconds we want this at 9.4 seconds the the guy is stabbed at 11.6 we'd end up with four or five hundred pages of timings for each for the scenes yeah and we'd have to sit there as composers remember what we saw with that one or two screenings when we spotted and saw the film Take the look at those notes, remember it, and then tr- transfer those notes and timings into frames and beats and tempos, and that's how we scored. We never had, you know, all of this technology. It, yeah, put up the QuickTime thing. Now you marry the QuickTime yeah. <laughs> to the to your workstation, <clears throat> and you play it. You, we got all this available now. It does all the timings for you and all that. No way. <laughs> never yeah. had any of that. I think it's also kind of a mixed blessing for editors because I know so many editors now that they have time to obsess over cuts. Whereas I think at a certain time for other, you know, in the past, 
editors didn't have that, you know, on a laptop, on a plane, they're cutting a movie like, and, right. and you know, so I think it, those editors had the opportunity to serve because they were on a clock, or, like they had to get sort of creative with, with in the cutting room. And sometimes now when my editor's like, oh, I'm still trying to get this cut. I'm like, just finish it and let's go. <laughs> like, Cause you can obsess yeah. over some little cut or whatever, you know, and it's, I'm not sure that's always a positive. No, it's no, it's, it's not. And it is a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Technology is great and all of that. We know that, but it definitely from a creative standpoint can work against you and does work against you. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's a tough balance, you know, with, yeah. we're always trying to find something that works. And you mentioned working on the score for reanimator, which, you know, not only is a beloved movie, but it's a beloved score. You know, you had done horror and sci-fi films prior to Reanimator, but I always felt that Reanimator was one of the first films you got to do that really had that element of humor in the horror, which is very, you know, much part of Stewart's style of filmmaking. Was that at the time part of, you know, what was fun about that project was getting to do some of the, you know, wackier stuff that's in Reanimator? It was not not originally in the planning. Um, I, I, when I first saw uh, reanimator. I remember Stuart and I, and Stuart used to tell this story. It was kind of funny. Um, we were sitting and this was a first cut. The first cut was like <clears throat> two hours and 20 minutes long. It was like insane. <clears throat> and Stuart, I'll kind of tell it the way Stuart used to tell it. Uh, so he and I are sitting in the screening room. We're looking at the movie and, and, um, he, he's looking, he looks over at me and I've got this very pensive sort of look on my face, you know, studying it. And then he'd look over a couple more times and I'd be there the same sort of position, but maybe my eyes were closed a little bit. And, and anyway, point being, and then he'd look over like the 10th time and I was there except my eyes were closed. And then finally you realize that it's a couple of parts that I was sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) That, that it got, it it was, it was so long. It was so ridiculous that, uh, you know, it was, it put me to sleep or whatever, which was, which was, yeah, exactly. So a little, little bit of commentary on, Hey, this needs to be cut down a little bit guys. Right. Yeah. Right. Totally. (laughs) But, um, but in the beginning, the very beginning, uh, both Stewart and Brian wanted this to be a, just a strict horror, horror movie, like the most horrific thing <clears throat> ever. <clears throat> and we had a bit of a fight uh, for about a month or so after I had seen it and sort of, I really wanted to take a different approach, not to minimize the horror, but I really felt that it's kind of hard to describe this because today, like anything goes, but back in the day, some of the stuff in that film was like over the top. I mean, you just, you couldn't get away with that shit. Well, right? a severed head, you know, going down on a woman is still pretty right. out there. So yeah. Right. Yeah, so sure. there, were, there was a bunch of that sort of thing. In there. Exactly. <laughs> so um, I really was of the view that the score had to 
not be funny. It could still be horrific, but it had to be a little more whimsical for certain moments uh, and, and quirky so that the audience could take looking at some of this stuff because I really felt if you, it was treated totally seriously that they would just get up and walk out. I didn't think they were the audience would be ready for something like that. So I was thinking very hard about how how can I make the music have a character that gave the audience permission to be horrified and laugh at the same time. And Initially, they were kind of against this idea, um, but over the course of about a month, uh, I convinced them to sort of let me do my thing, and that's how it developed. Because the, the and it's not like they uh, said, um, "Oh yeah, let's play the humor and this that," and they went and shot it that way. The film was already shot, so but it was how how can how can you? Uh, massage the film with the music and all that to, to make it uh, both horrific, but give the audience permission to uh, to laugh at it, enjoy it, and just get into that vibe, right? And so that's why I came up with some of the devices I came up with for the film. I think it's a great articulation of how a score can change a whole film because I think of that movie just in my head imagining that movie with a sinister dark score and it would play completely different um you know and and I don't think it would work as well so you know I think it's that's a great exercise for for you know people listening to this episode of the show you know take reanimator and play a dark sinister score you know turn down your score and and you have a very different movie you know what I mean like it's and it's funny because that movie's become so beloved for that black humor it has. And, and that became sort of a, a part of Stewart's kind of uh, presentation as a genre filmmaker. And, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah it's, Absolutely. It, and it's, you know, I think that's such a great kind of example, though, of, of your of a situation where the material married with your score brought out a whole other dimension in that movie. Uh, I, I don't have to add to that. You're 100 percent right. Absolutely true. And you know, now, this- on the other side of the coin, the next movie we did from Beyond, from Beyond did yeah. not take did not take that approach. Right. You see, and as such, initially, a lot of people came out and when it was released. A lot of the reviews came out and said, "Well, it's good as this, but it's not like Reanimator." They were comparing a lot to Reanimator, which I always thought was stupid. It was. Movie. Yeah, <laughs> it's a totally different movie, yeah. a different type of horror fantasy thing, and the score was totally different because of that. I think that you was know, just so- a scenario where people went Lovecraft, Stuart Gordon, Jeff Combs, Barbara Crampton. You know, there were right. so many things that tied them together, but but it's right. it, yeah, which is silly though. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And in From Beyond was a score that you did that, uh, you know, and again, a very memorable score. And you won a, an award at Seaches for that for that score, didn't you? Yeah, that won the Best Music of the Year award. And that was up against uh, Aliens 2. And it was up against four other huge films. Um, I'm trying to remember the other ones now. One was Aliens 2. Uh, what was the big, the David Lynch thing with the Angelo Badalmenti did? Back in the day, um, Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet. That it was up against that as well. Um, I think it was up against Star Trek too, as well. 
And one other bit, they were all heavy big, hitters. Yeah, <laughs> they were all big, big studio films. And uh, From Beyond won uh, won the best best music. It's kind of funny because it was about four years later. I was on holiday in back in Italy in Rome. I'm sitting eating at this restaurant, and this fellow comes and taps me on the shoulder, and he says uh, in a broken English, this Italian fellow, he says, "I just want you to know." Uh, I was one of the uh, judges at the Stegis Festival three, four years ago, uh, and you did a fantastic score, and I was one of the judges, and it was Victoria De Sica's son who was one of the judges. Oh, okay. I'm going, I'm going, whoa. You know, <laughs> going to a, he was one of the judges back, you know, a few years before, Victoria De Sica's son. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a weird world. What can I tell you? But, yeah, that was a – that. Uh, Again, a very different kind of score from Reanimator. Did Stuart and, come to you on that film and say, "Let's do something a little more ominous, a little more, you know, straight ahead on this one"? Or, no. or did you just no. put it together yourself on again? No, Stuart and I. Stuart, uh, that's why I enjoyed working with him. He he knew he knew if I was left to my own devices, that it, everything would be okay. That's really the bottom line. Not that I wouldn't preview some things for him as best I could or run stuff by him now and then, rarely, but I did, you know, now and then. Uh, I couldn't really preview um, from beyond, like sit at a piano and do stuff because it was so string-based and synth-based and weird, you know. You know, it's kind of hard to preview if you listen to that score. How are you going to preview that, right? Um, (laughs) But um, I did the best I could, you know, as far as explaining and, and what have you. And on other things we worked on in, 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 uh, later on, I previewed best I could in some, in some ways. Uh, but he, uh, he, he left me to my devices. And that's, that's just the way I work best. Yeah. It's, that's what it comes down to. I want to do a little exercise with you here. I'm going to name some of your score, uh, some films that you've scored. And we're going to do a little sort of free association. So I'm going to say the name of the film. And you just tell me the first thing that comes to mind about how you created the score or the working on that project. Okay. If I remember. If you remember. <laughs> I think I've picked pretty memorable movies though. All right. Here okay. we go. We're going to start with Terror Vision. Terror Vision, a very fun and interesting experiment because I knew very little about electronics and relied heavily on both Joel Goldsmith and Christopher Stone, who were incredibly well-versed, but had to come up with a whole new way of, uh, uh, of showing what I was hearing in my brain. And, And that, that took, uh, people with better knowledge of electronics than myself. But it was totally fun and loved working on it. Arena. Arena. Um, Also an interesting uh, experience. I don't remember too much about it, but I do remember... I do remember that there was some Jerry Goldsmith score that helped me along thinking of a certain um, style. I wanted to marry uh, some hard-hitting electronics with 
a driving percuss- percussive nature. I don't remember the score, but um, there was something. I remember that, that there was some score that Jerry did uh, years before that that helped me develop that. Bad chance. Maybe it was. Maybe what could it have been? Running Man. Was that sort of and, a yeah, that would and that was a similar genre film, so that would make sense. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe that's. Uh, I'm not sure, but maybe so. Um, bad channels. Bad channels. Don't remember a thing. I think they tracked. Uh, I don't remember scoring that. I think that was one of those where they used a lot of my music and and an editor uh, tracked tracked Spliced it. it in. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I didn't score that. Okay, what about? Pin the pendulum. Ah, well, there's a very proud of that score. some, uh, I think I did some really beautiful writing on that score. To this day, I loved the whole last 10 minutes of the film with the choir and the solo trumpet when she's coming down and the whole finale. And uh, I just, uh, my only, I, I, I wish I could have done the entire score with the full orchestra. Uh, but even, even having said that, the uh, most most people would not know that it was not a good size orchestra. It's got a, a big epic feel about it. I mean, I think it's such a it's it's an amazing score. It's one of the ones I listen to sometimes when I'm writing. It's it's so epic and um, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful. And you were just mentioning before we start recording that it's getting re released in some capacity. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I would say in the next two or three months, there's a new master uh we, we remastered it and there's going to be uh a second cd of call it extras or whatever where where we have how i assembled it so like you'll hear um like i said the first cd w- will be the score as one knows it except remaster is sounding much better the second cd will be the assembly of how I put those together because it was a combination of strings and, uh, and uh, in other words, real, real strings and real brass and real choir, but everything was recorded separately and then married in certain ways with the, uh, with the samples and electronics. So people will be able to hear how those things were assembled. Uh, I think fans will get a kick out of it. Sounds great. Is that coming out through Full Moon or is someone else putting that out? No, no, that's coming out uh, through um, Dragon Domain Records. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, how about Dollman? Dollman was a fun score. A small, again, smaller score. Um, not because it was Doll Man, but <laughs> but uh, you know, quantitatively, it was a more intimate. Let's say not small, more intimate score. So unlike a lot of my scores that are that sort of big sort of feel, it it overall was a smaller, more intimate feel. Um, but uh, 
I think it had some very good themes to it. And I think it was a very effective score. Very, very different. It's an interesting score, too, because I'm a big fan of the movie. And Albert Pune, you know, I think he did a lot of fun films. And Dolman's one of my favorites. But that score that you did for Dolman went on to be used in so many full moon trailers after that. <laughs> no kidding. Tons. Um, demonic Toys. What about that one? Same comment, actually. Same same thing. A more more intimate. A uh, couple of really nice themes to that. Again, uh, it would go on and be used in a bunch of other films as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> ditto. Yeah, and Dwight Joyce <laughs> is fun though because it's kind of got some of some similarities thematically to some of your work on like the puppet master films, but it's yeah. definitely decidedly darker and a little more ominous than, than the work you do in a puppet master. That's yes, that's definitely true. Yeah. And one of my favorites um, is Dr. Mordred. Yeah. 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 That's a pretty I, big I, score. That's one of the bigger yeah. ones I think you did for, for, for your brother. Yeah. Not, not, yeah, not huge, but definitely bigger, more action driven. And, um, it also, that's my personal favorite genre, very much like troll. You know, I really like fantasy. I mean, I like horror. I like all genres. Uh, it's just that I've scored a lot of genre films that are more in the horror, I guess, horror or sci-fi, sci-fi horror, whatever. But um, my personal favorite thing is fantasy. That's why I love troll, the movie itself. Which I just, um, on a side note, I just got back uh, on Sunday. I was up in Portland. At, uh, uh, they invited me up there. Uh, uh, Weird War was putting on this uh, film festival, and they had one night where they were showing Troll, Terrorvision, and From Beyond all oh, back wow. to back. Very cool. And and I was so they invited me up there to do Q and A's in between the films and stuff like that, and uh, it was a great experience. I just like I said, it was Saturday, oh. what two days, three days ago, and uh, those films uh, were the ones shown. Uh, so very much related, Doctor Mordred. Uh, again, I viewed uh, Troll is another example. I love fantasy films. That's why also I like things like. Uh, um, you know, all the, the Hobbit movies, you know, Peter Jackson did the uh, um, uh, Game of Thrones type of stuff. Uh, yeah, I just really more than anything, I love fantasy films. And of course, Dr. Mordred, definitely, yeah. you know, definitely that category uh, with nice action in it. Uh, and your dad was another. a big part of that film, too, right? Both, you know, so it was the three of you working on that one. Yeah. Yeah, def definitely, and uh, and on that score, it was it was fun, additional fun because I did use at least a small orchestra um, of strings and brass, live strings and live brass, and married it with uh, with uh, percussion, uh, sample percussion, and all that, and some synth work. 
but that was yeah i i just i i i really enjoy that film uh and like i said the genre is my favorite well, some, you know, fans of your work might not be as familiar with the stuff that you did for, was it called Moonbeam? The, the sort of family-friendly movies that... that yeah, really... that's, yeah, that's a whole different thing, right? Yeah, you did some right. great scores for that, and those were often fantasy films, so that must have kind of been right up your alley to work on those projects. Loved working on those. Prehysteria, yeah. Dragon World, loved working on both of those. Uh, very nice scores, good themes, uh, uh, released by Paramount at the time. Um, uh, I, Prehysteria also uh, Prehysteria was one of uh, Spielberg's favorite little movies. He also got get, got back to us. He used to play that for his for his kids a lot around that time. Um, of course, the impetus was Jurassic World uh, miniaturized. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. You know, with the little dinosaurs and all that. But a totally enjoyable film. Uh, yeah, I would. Well, it came out in what, like 93, 92, 93, somewhere like around there. That early 90s, yeah. And I was like around 10, 11. And I would alternate between watching something like Prehysteria and then I would put on, you know, demonic toys. So I just remember like, you know, my mom would come and be like, oh, this is sort of cute. And then she'd come back an hour later and be like, this is not so cute. You shouldn't be watching this. It was kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, you know, but, you know, there was so many great stuff in those little Moonbeam movies, like some great David Allen work with the stop motion and yeah. the score. And, they're, you know, they're really fun. I'm glad that that to see that Full Moon's putting some of those back out on Blu-ray so that fans can experience those films, too. I, I agree. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the music I did in all of those, and especially Dragon World, beautiful themes in that. And, and in all those films, I got to marry, again, real real orchestra with synth work. Uh, so they were, again, going back to the beginning of our whole discussion here, they, they all felt and sounded cinematic and, and, you know, even, even though they small films sort of epic like, and, you know, of that character, let's say. Right now for myself and a lot of other fans, one of your most iconic scores has to be the, your work on the puppet master series. Um, which I think is, you know, a perfect blend of sort of the magical, playful nature of the Puppet Master films. And there's sort of a nostalgia to the scores in them because the movies do go back in time. And they're a lot about, you know, Toulon's loss of his wife and his friends who become these. I mean, it's a really, you know, I always thought the Puppet Master score works as well as it does because it's a deeper score than it could have been. It could have just been killer puppets. And it isn't that. Um you know, how did you approach scoring the original Puppet Master film? You know, what was sort of the thought process you had in developing the music for that film? Well, you kind of just nailed it yourself. To me, the Puppet Master, from the outset, it's a story about lost souls and good people. It's not a story about evil puppets. It has puppets doing nasty things, obviously, 
But those puppets were all people who got robbed of their lives and souls because of the Nazis. Yeah. That's, that's the real premise of Puppet Master. And, of course, Toulon himself was robbed of his life and pursued by the Nazis. He just happens to have been somebody who managed to sort of save these people in the form of these puppets. And so they take their revenge in certain ways, uh, you know, in the different movies and different circumstances. So the puppets are the good guys. They're not the bad guys. But the other element that was so important in creating the music for that was one, if you take that premise, it's a sad, tragic story. So the music couldn't just be like horror and shouldn't have even been based on that. It needed to be based upon them, i.e. the puppets, and in some cases the individual puppets themselves, taking proper revenge on bad people but all always with a certain lamentation and sadness to them. And that had to be married to that time period where it started. So uh, it started, you know, uh, pre-Nazi and Nazi, right? So what was the very thing that, from a musical standpoint, that one could identify with of that period and uh, in Germany and Austria and all that, what was musically one of the things that the second you heard it, you would know that it's from that, close to that period, but definitely in that region, and that was a waltz. And that's the whole premise of the theme of Puppet Master. So you've got that three, four waltz going, and the theme itself is this, sad theme in a sense that then in the very first puppet master goes to a little bit more whimsical but never evil at least in the main themes so that it portrays the period itself the sadness and the tragic part of it that was the impetus of how i came up with the uh, original puppet master theme that to this day, people cannot separate Puppet Master from the music or vice versa. No. They are they are one. Yeah, it's such a huge part of that series. And, you know, just by looking behind me, you can see I'm a huge fan of that of that franchise. And I think of it's it's such an important part of it. I hear that music and immediately I'm seeing, you know, images from the film. And um, you know, it's 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 also in those things, you know, because you went on to work on many subsequent Puppet Master films over the, you know, for for I don't know how long now. It's been what to 30 years almost. Um, well, I didn't work on all of them. I worked on the first three. Um, then they uh, they used a lot of my music and then had a few other composers. So they tracked about five of the films, and I came back on for the Access series. Okay. Um, which were, I think, 9, 10, and 11, in, numerically speaking. That sounds right, uh, yeah. And uh, developed uh, those I scored, uh, and uh, I think they just they just finished one, uh, a newer one. To be honest, I'm my brother is going to hate me for this, but I forgot the name of the one. Doctor Death, I think, is the newest. Doctor Death. So yeah, I, yeah, I have nothing to do with that, other than the fact that 
they're using obviously some you're of credited my music. as the composer on it. <laughs> well, I am. Yeah, on IMDb, you are. Yeah, I am. Oh, okay. Well, we'll see what ends up in the main crash. But I, I had nothing to do with it other than yeah, they're going to use some of the puppet master. Obviously, they're going to use some of the the music. But they they hired a composer to do some, uh, I guess, additional music on that or what have you. So it'll it'll be a It'll all be a surprise to me when it's out, <laughs> I suppose, in the next uh, few weeks or what have you. Now, uh, we're just sort of wrapping up here, but one of the the, the, the things I think that in, your, in the, the sort of more recent history that you've worked on that, that I think is really memorable is the music you did for some of uh, Mick Garris's Masters of Horror, yeah, uh, which you got a primetime Emmy nomination for, which was awesome. Yes, um, yes. With, when you did that project, did you work with Mick or with the directors of the segments you worked on? Well, Mick was the director on one of them, Valerie okay. on the Stairs, uh, and um, Stewart was uh, was the director on Dreams in the Witch House. So, and that's the one that got the Emmy uh, thing. Okay. Uh, so, I, actually, I and and um, oh, forgive me. What's the uh, the Washingtonians? Uh, very that Peter Medic. Peter Medic, a, yeah. a brilliant uh, English uh, director. The Changeling, uh, yeah. Changeling, there you go, amongst yeah. many other things. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I got to work with three pretty heavyweight people there. Yeah. Uh, and um, so, yeah, this, so actually it was Stuart was kind of responsible for bringing me back into that, into that uh, project. Because uh, I, I, I had gotten to a point uh, where I, I refused to do any more genre films for a period of about four or five years. I just got tired. I was just doing so many. I got tired of it. I, I think that's roughly the period where I started doing a lot more of the uh, um, maybe the Paramount stuff, you know, the more kids stuff, the more family friendly stuff. I was also doing a lot of work for Warner Brothers. Uh, uh, kids primetime stuff uh, a lot of animation sci-fi stuff too i saw like stargate and some star trek and some yeah other. and then the, so i so there was a period of about four or five years where i just wasn't doing genre, you know typical genre stuff and then stewart called me and and he said look i'd really like you to do dreams in the witch house and um because it was stewart you know and because i hadn't done any genre stuff in several years uh, I, I said yes, and lo and behold, I got an Emmy for uh, a nod for that, right? Uh, so that was all. And then from that, uh, I then did a mix episode, Valerie on the Stairs, and then Peter's, uh, the Washingtonians. I loved working on all three of those. Those those were just fun. You know, they were just, uh, what can I say? They were, they were fun. And... Um, a lot of nice exposure and then they played well and um obviously because of that i developed a good relationship with mick and we've worked on a few things since then the most recent was nightmare cinema um which was a i guess a couple of two three years ago can't remember yeah time yeah, that's right. yeah and that was uh that was that was a lot of fun too uh um we'll see if it goes anywhere else but uh, nightmare cinema was great because not only did i get to do 
you know, it was an anthology of five mini films. And uh, so obviously I worked on, on mix and, um, and I did all the, uh, all the interstitial stuff that tied all the episodes together and the main title and all that. But I also got to work with Joe Dante, uh, which was a real gas. Yeah. Uh, he's great. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's obviously great. And, and uh, his episode, uh, you know, very much in the Joe Dante whimsical oh, yeah. style, you know, so yeah. that, that was, that, that was a lot of, that was a lot of fun doing it's a fun his, movie. Doing, it's a fun movie. All yeah, around. it's fun. It's fun. Definitely. Yeah. No. So I'm curious to sort of wrapping up here. Like, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. You started in late seventies and you're still going like, and we talked a bit about how the technical part of it has changed, but other than the, you know, the technical side of it, how, do, you know, do you find that your work has evolved in a particular way or, or your process of, com- of composing has changed in a sim- in a certain way? Or, or do you feel like you're still kind of tapping into that same thing that you did, you know, back on laser blast when you, when you score a film? That's a good question. There's, let me put it this way. I, I kind of always have had to fall in love with whatever project I'm working on, whether it's a piece of shit, right. (laughs) Or whether it's brilliant. I, I just, I've, I've always been somewhat incapable of, of just doing something, uh, you know, for a paycheck as small as they may be in these cases. I'm just not good at that. And I, so in that, it, in that sense, I still put in the same amount of work and thought into every single project that I do. Cause that's simply the way that's where I, that's where I get my inspiration. I have to, I have to understand the project properly. I have to look for what, for those ingredients that are not obvious in a two-dimensional medium. And many times I've said music, I believe, is a third dimension, third dimension in a two-dimensional medium. I like to look at those things that are not uh, obvious. Uh, in the dialogue, story, or uh, or visually, um, you and I discussed a good example with uh, Puppet Master and the theme and where those where all that comes from. I try my best in every situation to find those particular ingredients, things are that are that third dimension of what we're uh, you know and what that what that can accomplish. So I still have the drive. To, to put in the work and thought and it's, it's, and process that I've always had. Um, I think where I'm, I think where I'm a little jaded, not jaded, but maybe more disappointed is in the fact that the technology itself, as we discussed a little bit, has, has stifled or try to stifle the uh, some of the creative process like getting a track score a attempt score or things that we've discussed today with the technology and uh, what have you so i kind of am on some levels fighting the technology uh, and fighting uh the what people call progress uh, as far as filmmaking is concerned it's uh 
is not always prog- progress, right? So I, I, does that answer your question? I yeah, think. absolutely. Yeah. And so yeah. what's, um, what's next for you? What have you got in the horizon? Are you working on anything right now? Are you scoring anything new? Or? Well, I'm just finishing, and you'll be happy to hear this. I'm just finishing a picture that's literally been in the making for close to 40 years. That is David Allen's The Primevals. I can't wait for that, man. I'm so excited yeah. to see that movie. I <laughs> uh, just finished the score to it a few weeks ago, and we're going to be mixing it in the next uh, two or three weeks. Uh, and uh, we'll see where it goes as far as distribution. But that was, uh, uh, that's going to be a, well, it is a really good movie. Let's just put it that way. And that's one where I fought as much as I could to get as much budget as I could. So at, at least on that one, uh, we've gone back to have a uh, a nice combination of real orchestra with, uh, with sampled stuff that I've perfected over the years. It's a huge score. This one is like, all the others are big. This one is ridiculous. This thing is huge. I had a, I did a, uh, um, a whole day of, uh, of sessions in Bratislava, Slovakia, with a fifty-piece string section. Wow! Uh, for this, amongst some other things, and uh, here's one of the good parts about technology: I did it all remotely. Oh, <laughs> yeah! So I was sitting here. I was sitting here in my studio, conducting an orchestra. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't conducting, but but in essence, monitoring yeah. it and, and talking directly with the conductor who was in real time in in uh, Bratislava with the whole orchestra and all that, and uh, uh, with uh, some of my copyists and librarians and all this, uh, some some of whom were in Greece and they were in Bratislava. I'm here, so all, everything was tied together. So it was, uh, and that's a that's. God, that movie has like it was. It felt like it felt like doing Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, with with six dollars in this case, not two dollars. <laughs> well, I mean, were, you, were, were you attached to the like original iteration of Primeval's to score it back yeah. way back when? Yeah, right. Yeah, I yeah. You probably were. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, for I for people listening that don't know, like Primeval's is a film that David Allen, who's who hasn't been with us for some time now, David passed away in what the late nineties. I don't remember, but it's been a, at least 18 or 20 years, at least. Yeah. yeah. And this was a film, a fairly epic film, you know, particularly on, on sort of, you know, for a full moon film, which are which are lower budget films, that he did it, but he died before he could complete it. And now all these years later, the film's finally going to get to see a release. But it looks like such a treat. I mean, it looks like it's right up your alley, too. It's fantasy, adventure, kind totally. of. Totally. Yeah. 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 Fantasy. uh a combination of um, uh, Shangri, uh, you know, like going into the Himalayas and an expedition in the mountains and finding yetis and and aliens and all this stuff and a, a ton of incredible animation, real animation, no CGI crap, uh, <laughs> all this old school incredible stuff in there. And uh, it looks like sort of a lost Harryhausen movie from little clips I've seen of it. Like, it yeah, it's kind of like a lost, lost horizon. Mary's uh, Jason of the Argonauts. Yeah. Mary's, yeah, all that. It's 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 a real adventure. 
it's and a it's real all, investment. So I'm assuming because you've scored it now, like it's all cut together and it's it's assembled and Hold on. wow, Hold on. that's exciting. Yeah. The only thing left to do now is the final mix where we mix all of the uh, the sound and uh, final elements together. Uh, yeah, I, I would say it'll be 100% completed within within a month. Yeah, for I mean, sure. I think I think of little Richard Ban in in a homemade tux with a baton standing on the coffee table <laughs> to now where you're doing conducting, you know, working with an, an orchestra and a conductor over Zoom. Like uh, it's quite a quite a, a journey, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, no, it it definitely was. Although the big the biggest journeys uh, for for me because I was there personally is all the years I did a lot of scoring in London with like the Royal Philharmonic on uh, like my father's film, uh, ghost warrior, which was called sword kill, you know, and, uh, or scores like mutant that I did for ego Cantor and film ventures at, you know, where I had like, you know, anywhere from a 70 to 90 piece orchestra, you know, in those great stages in London, that was those were in, incredible experiences. Uh, uh, I hope to be able to do more like that one day, but for now, at least to be able to do this and with all the technology and and all of that. Uh, and this one turned out really, really, really good. Uh, not only the film, but for musically, I'm very happy with it. A lot of music in this one. Like I said, kind of like doing a Raiders or the Lost Ark. It's, got to be at least 75 80 minutes of music in this. Wow. it's a lot i'll be yeah. I'll, something new for me to add to my writing rotation then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and i think that's something that's got to be cool i think you know i would think for you to hear is like i know a lot of filmmakers who who love your work and and play it when they're working and when they're writing and so to think that the 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 music you've created has helped and inspired other people to tell their stories or whatever you know i don't know that seems like that must be something that would be pretty neat for you yeah yeah i mean it's nice to know obviously that <laughs> it has inspired uh you know other composers writers directors and all that um now if they could just each send me a buck a piece uh you know <laughs> Fill <laughs> <laughs> my royalty stream a little bit, you know, for the retirement uh, days. You know, that would, yeah. that would help. No, it's, obviously, it's very flattering. I mean, just like I was saying last Saturday, to be invited and going up to Portland for a weekend and playing some of the some of those old movies and uh, having and the audience was packed. I mean, it was like a five hundred seat beautiful theater. You know, and they wanted to come out and not only see the films, but they were very enthusiastic about, you know, with questions and stories and all that. So, yeah, no, it's obviously it's it's very flattering and all of that. Uh, but again, to me, I mean, not but, but in addition to that, to me, it's uh, it's all about the work, the process and and the result. And as long as I can keep doing it uh i'll be a happy camper well i think you know? it goes without saying for me and a lot of uh your many fans that, that i certainly hope you keep doing it because uh there's so many films that i can't imagine without your music to them so and i hope that maybe when primeval is finally out there that maybe you'll come back and tell us a bit about how you how you did that score and about that film sure oh sure no i'm i'm uh 
I'm very excited about that score. Uh, and yes, it was, it's, like I said before, it's, it's right up my alley. It's my favorite sort of fantasy type thing, ad- adventure. That's, I, I, I love doing those. Those are, that's my thing. That's my favorite. So when you get more than $2.49 for a score, you can call me with one of your projects. 100%. In a heartbeat. You know, I will absolutely. At, at least $3. I promise you at least, <laughs> like, you know, we can send you a pizza or something. Like, Yeah, there you go. There yeah, you go. Something like gift card or something. I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll negotiate. (laughs) Thank you so much, Richard, for for sharing your stories with us and and about your work. It's been a real blast. uh, Thank you. All right. Thanks. My, My pleasure. Take care. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and co-produced by Felipe Ojeda. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Hatton. Original artwork and design elements generously produced by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, Instagram at, all one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. Post, comment, share, like. But don't forget... The good old-fashioned word of mouth still goes a long way. The best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Friends, family, co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>